Support for Under the Radar comes from Wellwithall. Wellwithall believes that self-care is community care. Premium products crafted for your daily wellness, from sleep support to heart health to your daily regimen. 20% of Wellwithall's profits are committed to leading the fight for health equity. They won't stop until it is truly Wellwithall. I'm Callie Crossley, and this is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. And now for the part of the show we call Lanya, that's Creole for something extra, a sweeping saga of family, time, memories, ghosts, and the wonders of an evolving landscape. The heart of the novel, North Woods, is about one New England house and the forest surrounding it. Through prose and poetry, author Daniel Mason links the stories of the inhabitants of the house through the ebb and flow of American cultural and political history. Author Daniel Mason is an assistant professor in the Stanford University Department of Psychiatry. He is the author of four previous books, including A Registry of My Passage Upon the Earth, which was a finalist for the Pulitzer Prize. Mason's work has been translated into 28 languages, as well as adapted for opera and the stage. He's won numerous awards, including a Guggenheim Fellowship, a Joyce Carol Oates Prize, an O. Henry Prize, and a National Endowment for the Arts Fellowship. And Daniel Mason joins me now from Western Massachusetts. Welcome, Daniel. Thanks so much for having me. I am delighted to have you. Boy, this book just grabs you and won't let go. Perhaps you've heard that from others who've read it. It's <laughs> very kind. Thank you. <laughs> um, so we've described the book, the novel, as we've heard, as you know, a saga that goes over a couple of centuries. And I wanted to ask a question that... Uh, intrigued me and, in fact, brought me to the book in the first place because it was set in Massachusetts. So I thought, well, let me take a look at this and just see if it's something that would interest me. So why Massachusetts? Part is a little bit of the history of how I came about writing it. Uh, during the pandemic, my family went out from California to area in, in upstate New York where, where we have relatives uh, to spend some of the time. And we had come out in the fall and I was really just very captivated by the by the natural landscape. And and so then um, we returned to California the following year. I had a fellowship to work on the book and, and decided to come back to the same area, which is sort of in the borderlands between uh, Columbia County, New York, Western Massachusetts, Southern Vermont, sort of all different areas that ended up inspiring the book. And what inspired you to write the book? Just the landscape in general or did something trigger just your thought, gee, this is the germ of an idea that could just grow bigger. I, I, it, I mean, it's so unusual in the way that you've approached the story. You know, I'm intrigued by what would have motivated you to begin to write it this way. Part of it was the landscape. Um, I mean, I think, as you know, there's there's really nothing like a New England fall. And the, especially for someone from California, very used to sort of sunny skies and relatively little change in weather just to watch how fast the woods were changing around me itself was fascinating. But I think that there was also an element of, of the presence of human history here, which was also something very new to me, um, or at least very sort of obvious human history, and that I'd be walking around the woods um, and encounter something again, something which I think is very familiar to um, anyone who lives in New England, and that is these old walls or old cellar holes or um, 100-year-old houses that are falling apart, 300-year-old houses that people have put little plaques on, um, sort of advertising the date that the house was built. 
and this just had me thinking about time and most most of the places that I've lived in um, have been as old as I am, younger than I am. Um, and so the thought that there are these buildings that we inhabit that have seen so much life um, and death and all, all the sort of dramas that, that occur across the habitation. And yet at the same time, we know so little about what's actually gone on in the houses that we live in before we were there. And this idea really got me. And so you know, in that first year, as I was walking around and looking at places, I was like, I wonder you know, what went on there? Why is there this cellar hole here? What was the house like? What were those people like? Who built this wall? Sort of constant questions um, that really suggested in ways to chapters in a history that that pass and um, and move on. So it's interesting because it's not a traditional linear telling of the passage of time and place. It's not sort of 1862 chapter, and then you tell me what happens, and then the next one is, you know, 1910 or whatever. Um, it's, it's, it's a whole different approach to passage of time. And how did you come to decide that that would be the best way to tell the story? And I also should note that the language itself feels old, if you know what I mean. It doesn't feel contemporary. So it feels as though it's, it, it has an historic framework to it throughout the book, even as we're moving closer to somewhat contemporary times in the book. So I'm curious about both of those things. This is during the pandemic. I think that sort of permanence or impermanence was very much on, on everybody's mind. Um, this kind of question of what 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 do we become? What what becomes of these institutions we've created? The art that we've created is all something that I think a lot of people were talking about or thinking about privately. And so, I, in the beginning, I, I wanted to to write something that, in some ways, treated um, our experience, my experience, uh, as something very fleeting, um, and trying to put it within a larger framework. And you know. You know, I'll admit, find some sort of comfort in that to, to sort of see my life as part of this lo longer picture, this larger time scale. And so uh, that idea was very much there from the start. And in the beginning, I think there's also this the, being in the natural world encourages that, and particularly being in, in New England, because there have been so many changes to the, to the landscape in New England over the centuries that one can really get a sense. Um, of time's passage by sort of checking in at these different moments. And um, early on, I, I came across these exhibits at um, at Harvard Forest, which, which anyone can go out and visit um, out in Petersham, central Massachusetts, which are dioramas that show this area of central Massachusetts as it changes over the centuries. Um, and how there's just dramatic changes we move from the sort of um, these these forests with these grand trees to burnt landscapes to farmed landscapes to replanted landscapes, um, and so it time passed like in this very very broad sort of quick sense. And people who were there seemed a very small part of it. So that was um, I think that that motivated it. Um, and long answer to your question. And the other the other part I guess is that's sort of like why why I said it historically. And part of that comes from just. I think my love of old texts and different kinds of Englishes and um, the sense that the English that I'm speaking today, um, much like the landscape that I'm living in today, is one which doesn't exist alone in time, but is something very much inspired by Englishes that went before. I want to give my listeners a, a chance to hear you on the page. So I wonder if you'd read from page 39 
Um, and of course, you can set it up because this is uh, one of the occupants of the yellow house that's set in this forest. Um, as you have described it, it's uh, very hard to reach, but when you get there, it's quite something. And this is the place that many people, many of your characters will pass through through the centuries. And this man is one of the significant people who um, comes to live there. So she looked then much as she does now, a clean facade of lemon yellow with white shutters on the windows and tall black door. A home of perfect symmetry, were it not for the L on her left flank. In the dooryard, we planted the sapling that would one day grow into the noble elm that now stands 40 feet and gives us shade in summer. It was then that I returned to Albany to fetch my furniture and my daughters. And so it was that my little family came to settle in this remote station in the North Woods. I will admit that there were days when I faltered in my conviction. How I recall the miserable cold that accompanied our journey, the rude inn in where we took shelter. An icy rain had fallen on the day of our arrival. The world was cloaked in glass. The girls stared wide-eyed at the crystal palace that awaited. From behind us in the sleigh, the furniture creaked its protest. The piano hammers leapt against the strings. Oh, I thought, what if I had waited until summer to reward them with limpid streams and wild berries? To take such tender children from their home seemed nothing less than an extirpation. And so that their father might pursue his fancy? What had I had done? But the die was cast and work awaited. How swiftly did the months then follow? We took our cuttings of the tree in February, grafted them in March, and planted them in April. By summer, a neat square of a hundred little saplings was rising beneath their mother's watchful gaze. The first gave fruit the third autumn of our sojourn. The following year, some 47 trees were blossoming, and the fifth listed, lifted our census to 93. The September of that year, I gathered 2,397 apples, less the taxes imposed by my coterie. We were ready to bring them to market. That's my guest, Daniel Mason. He's author of Northwoods, our December selection for Bookmark, the Under the Radar Book Club. Your ability to move back and forth between the human occupants, that's how I'll de describe them, and then the flora and fauna and the, the other animals, the mammals and the, the bees, and um, it's just amazing to me. I am not a flora fauna person. So this is not typically a book I would get into. And I found myself like holding my breath, reading some of the passages of uh, that involved uh, these other occupants of the land and being so drawn to um, what you've masterfully done, I believe, in taking that history that you saw, that panoramic history of central Massachusetts and how the landscape changed, and really uh, bringing it down to characters, small characters, to show us how that evolution took place. Now, I cannot imagine how hard it would be to write this. <laughs> what, how did it just flow? Or just how did you get into a sense that this is how I'm going to portray the evolution of this landscape? Hmm. Well, in the beginning, I had the kind of crazy idea that you know, there I am walking around in the woods, sort of enamored by it all, um, and pretty unfamiliar with this particular landscape. Um, but I had this thought of, um, here we are, humans kind of making a mess of things. Maybe I should just write a book entirely from the perspective of non-human life, and it'll feature the trees and the animals and fungi and so forth. And um, 
I think I'm glad I left that idea behind. But at the same time, I think what I was left with was this sense of um, if I'm going to write a story of a house and of a place of this little spot in the in the woods here, I need to not just tell the story of the place when people are there, but at these other moments when people are gone and then also all these other characters are contributing to, to the story that are very much affecting human lives. And, and so I, mean, I, I, I love nature um, in all of my writing when I have a chance to sort of describe a natural setting, it's always a moment I kind of look forward to. Um, but I think that previously I really kind of treated the natural world as that, as, as setting, as a backdrop for the human drama. And here was was this chance to kind of tell uh, as best as I could the drama of these other sort of non-human neighbors, um, and so which which is very dramatic. Once I started thinking about it, like all the good stuff that happens in human life, all the um, you know that makes a good story at least. Um, so the violence, the the sex, the um, the dramas of birth and and death. Um, this of course is going on in the natural world as well. And, and, um, and so as I was reading about the natural history there, and I pick up on these stories, and they would give me the chance to um, explore th these characters as kind of main characters in the book. And so, you know, whether it's like, you know, focusing on the life of a little fungal spore, that eventually will completely alter the New England landscape, or a beetle, um, whose love life will also kind of lead to the demise of the elm tree. Um, it kind of gave gave me a chance to sort of think about um, these other denizens as very different kinds of active members of our lives. So there are actually three sets of characters, I would say. So we have the inhabitants, um, settlers on the run, the apple guy you just read a passage about, a uh, young woman who was dropped off by uh, Native Americans. There's this whole, they all have stories. Bounty hunters, you know, looking for a self-liberated enslaved person. Um, all the stories are going across these centuries. And again, what fascinated me is it is not linear connections. And yet I was so satisfied as a reader to know that they were connected. Now, they didn't know. And maybe everybody else in their lives, in their real lives, didn't know. But we, the reader, would learn of the various connections. Why did you decide to uh, link? Because you you didn't have to. They could each have had their own story moved on. House would have still still been there as sort of the connecting piece, and that would have been a great story too. Why did you decide to do it the other way? Beginning any project is always so hard, and I thought, well, let me not try to write some. You know, let me let me think of this as a series of of stories, and I'll just find stories in this landscape. And but but I was just a few stories in when it became clear to me. Um, that the characters like didn't want to go, um, and, and this was really you know particularly apparent um, in the in the chapter that follows the one that I read from earlier, um, where there are these two twin daughters who take over the apple orchard that's founded by by their father, and I came to really love these characters and sort of central characters of the book, Mary and Alice Oswood, these spinster sisters who live together and develop this very sort of intense relationship um, filled with kind of love and envy. Um, that that ends uh, in a way that really surprised me, and and it's like I found myself um, four chapters into this book and they were gone, and I was moving forward in history, and and I really think I didn't I didn't want them to go away, and so like I'm looking at this landscape, and there are things which are there, and if I know why how they got there um, in this in the 17th century, 
Um, the characters that arrive in the 18th won't. And so there's almost like this conspiracy um, between the book and the reader um, and the writer against the characters in the book who will pick up an axe and have absolutely no idea about the bloody history of the axe or um, will find an apple tree that's been abandoned with no idea of, of the human drama that went on um, in both planting the tree as well as sort of the demise of the of the apple orchard. And, and so I, I loved these kinds of um, surprises when, when they occur. And um, often I'd forget these little elements earlier on. So even just now when I was reading to you, I, I read... Um, this bit about how Charles Osgood, who plants the trees, talks about planting this tiny little elm tree. And I'd almost forgotten that he was the one who planted that elm tree, which later on becomes this very important tree in the book when it falls on the house and when it's a much bigger tree and ends up wrecking the house. And um, and so some of these surprises even ended up surprising me. Well, it was great. And because you didn't want some of your people to leave the book, they didn't. They became ghosts. So right. there's a bit of magical realism. So you have the inhabitants of the house, you have the flora and fauna and all the 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 bees and the larvae and all the rest of the plants and everything else that's happening around their life, their stories um, and their evolution. And then you have these ghosts that don't want to go that appear to be attached to the land and the house. So um, you know, that's a big jump to go to magical realism. What what made it work for you? There was this moment where we don't know whether a character is kind of hallucinating or whether it's the presence of a presence of a ghost. And when I decided, like, you know, maybe this is a book about memory and this is a book about how the past lives on in in traces. Um, we can find these sort of elements of the past in, in the present. In a way, there's a lot of metaphorical ghosts here. Why don't I just kind of make a commitment and 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 put some real ghosts in? And so, um, I mean, one, there's just the the fun of it. Um, and all of a sudden, it opens up a lot of possibilities in in, in the story. Um, but there's also this challenge that I hadn't quite appreciated um, in writing a ghost story that's given me a lot of respect for for mystery writers, writers of the supernatural, and that is that I hadn't really thought through this when I first started out, but one needs to have rules for ghosts. Like one has to be consistent about what your ghostly world can do and what it can't do. Um, and it's something my kids really held me to because they'd always ask these questions like, can your ghost walk through walls? Can ghosts smell the dog, smell the ghost? Can there be ghost dogs? If you lose a dog, will you see it in the ghost world? And all these kinds of questions that one sort of needs to know. Can your ghosts take revenge on people in real life? Can people in real life hear ghosts, that becomes like a big plot point in the middle of the book, the fact that someone's sort of hearing um, love whispers of some of the ghosts. And so um, it became this other other challenge. It was, it was a lot of fun, but there were certainly moments when I'd sit back and say, wait a second, I'm not so sure my ghosts can do that. Well, it's fascinating. Um, and oh, a question. There's a lot of poetry. Did you write the poetry? I did, yeah. So um, th these are, again, this is sort of this... Um, this, these sort of found objects in the book that um, I mentioned when I when I would come across sort of historical readings and would fall in love with the language or fall, fall in love with the rhythm. Um, and I would think to myself, God, I would love to be able to, to write in this sort of form. And so, you know, in particular, the poems themselves, you know, I, I can't put a CD with the book, but I imagine they would be sung by these sisters who are, you know, they're they're composed by these sisters living in the grave, in their grave beneath the house. And um and and this is how they pass their their time is composing these ballads. 
And it's just a different form. I regularly, I'm not allowed to write in ballad form. I think if I send in a book of 350 pages worth of ballads, my editor would be a little bit uh, perplexed with me. But, but, but you know, I could kind of get away with four. And, and so it's fun to play with the, the rhythms and, um, you know, imagine what they might, they might sound like. So I come away with, um, you know, there are linkages across time and place with people you may not ever know, but there they are. And, um, and then uh, this seems like this would be your day job since you are in the Department of Psychiatry, but that change is inevitable. <laughs> is that right? I mean, is that kind of where you come from? Because you are in psychiatry, and I'm imagining you've said that more than once. <laughs> uh, right. Yeah. And the funny thing is, like, as I write, I find that um, in some ways, all writing is a little bit of a form of of, of self, self-therapy. And there's a little bit of attention always for me to um, think to myself, like, am I writing just because this because it's comforting for me? Or am I writing this because it's a good story? And, you know, sometimes I have to dial back a little bit. But um, but a little bit of I think the self-therapy does does make it in. And and as one who loves the natural world, but I mean, one doesn't have to like be a, a, a nature lover to, to really get a sense of, you know, the, the sort of extraordinary biodiversity loss and, and habitat loss that's occurring, um, you know, and sort of increasing ravages of climate change. And there's this question then of, of what does one do with this? You know, one can, can try to be as active and po- as possible to, um, to at least not contribute it or reverse the trend or um, agitate for for better policies, no, but at the end of the day, as an individual, there's there's often not much that we can do, and and this is something that keeps me up a lot um, and occupies sort of a lot of my, you know, sort of worrying about the world and worry about my chil- my children's world, and um, and so something I can't really say that it's it, it hasn't settled those worries, but something that I can kind of. Um, hold and, and be with is this notion that um is that there never is really a kind of you know permanence um there's always a kind of change nature teaches us that there's always a kind of change when a tree falls other fall, trees come up in its place um that doesn't mean we shouldn't agitate as much as possible to to um you know to, to maintain the beauty that's here um but at this but at the same time i think kind of recognizing our own imper- impermanence is something that's given me a sort of strange kind of comfort um amidst all this is that what you would like readers to take away the 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 one worry i have about sort of saying that is that it would suggest a kind of complacency so at the end of the day i really would love readers to i mean first of all i want readers to engage with the characters um and the story and the natural landscape um you know beyond that i think that one thing that writing this has done for me is that now when i look at the woods it's it's so much more rich than it was before. It's not just rich in the moment that I'm seeing it, but I have this sense of this incredible history that's there that lays behind the, the grand trees that, that that I might see when I go outside. Um, and I think that being aware of that complexity, being aware of that history, really leads one to naturally fall into the position of wanting to protect it. Um, and so I think that that, I I hope, sort of by being one of, I think, many books now that... that um, could contribute to the sense of the complexity and the richness of the natural world. You know, maybe I could be part of, um, I think, of a group of people that are, that are um, trying to, to get us all to, to kind of recognize the beauty of what we have. 
Well, what an exquisite way to do it. Um, UTR listeners, if you haven't gotten it from my enthusiasm, this is a fantastic book. (laughs) It is so well done. I thank you so much for joining me. It's been wonderful talking to you. Daniel Mason is the author of Northwoods. The book is available now wherever books are sold. That's it for this week's edition of Under the Radar. Listen to us online at GBH News or wherever you get your podcasts. And follow us on Twitter and Facebook to stay up to date with our programming. Under the Radar with Callie Crossley is a production of GBH, produced by Jesse Steinmetz and engineered by Dave Goodman. Our intern is Ashley Sobroto. Our theme music is Fish and Chips by We Are Two Saxies, Grace Kelly and Leo P. Listen again on Wednesday and see you here at 6 p.m. next Sunday for a new episode. I'm Callie Crossley. Thanks for listening.